Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened that in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Shushan, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, together with some men from Judah, arrived, and I asked them about the Judeans, the remnant who had survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant who have survived the captivity there in the province are in great distress and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Upon hearing these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I prayed and, and fasted before the God of heaven. Thank you, Bix. Shabbat Shalom. We're going to look a little more <clears throat> than just those first four verses today, but that kind of sets the, the, um, the stage for the main stuff, which is we're going to talk a lot about prayer today. Before, uh, before I get into that, I'd like to just... Uh, who, who, who was not here last week? Okay. You won't be fined. I was just wondering. <laughs> we'll, we'll assess that and possibly depending on the total number of absences, um, and that's a whole other story. But now I wanted just to take a moment to, uh, the, uh, the message uh, from last week is up on YouTube if you want to check it out. Um, but I wanted just to kind of hit some of the highlights from that message um, we were, that, we just, that was, had to do with the, the Feast of First Fruits, which is one of the, the appointed times that we will talk about as we go through uh, Kasdan's book. <clears throat> but the picture there of First Fruits that Rabbi Chaim was talking about last week, because that was also the week we, we uh, had our pledged cards for our building uh, campaign, and I'll talk a little bit about that later as well. But uh, first fruits. If you remember, Chaim kind of gave the picture of, of what it must have been like for the, the Israeli farmer who had taken time to plow the field. Is it, by the way, can you hear me okay? Is it ringing? Or? Well, I think it's echo for me too, so I don't, just so you know. Um, the, the farmer who took, takes time to plow the field and, and, and plant the seed, and just kind of how the overall process of, of tithing and giving of the first fruits is very different, you know, you can get, than, than what we experience nowadays, today. I mean, any one of us can sit in our seat or sit on the RTD or the bus or at a stoplight, hopefully not, but you can take out your phone and boom, PayPal, and you can send something, you know, and it's very different than that idea of plowing the field planting the seed, that you don't necessarily just go down to big toolbox and buy the seed or, you know, or, or Home Depot. Uh, you, you plant the seed that you've saved from last year, and then, and then you don't just set your sprinkler system or your micro-irrigation system, but no, you wait for the rain, pray for the rain, and then it finally comes, hopefully enough, right? And then finally you see that, uh, that's, those sprouts coming up, and when it's time to harvest, really, that's when you think now it's time to to kick it into gear, and if I wasn't working before this, if I was waiting before this, now I really need to get to harvest. And God says, no, now's the time to harvest, yes, the best there, the, the, the firstlings and the best, good stuff, but then, as Chaim said, uh, you know, hightail it to Jerusalem, 
uh, to the temple to bring that. And so that's a very different picture of, you know, our idea when, when we give or we think about, ah, we get our paycheck and we honor God with our first fruits. And again, that whole process is very much different. Ah, I see my direct deposit hit, so I, now I can type it into my computer and send it to the office or whatever you do. It's very different than that picture we see uh, biblically of, of first fruits. And certainly that image represents something very important that Chaim talked about, is that it, it, it represents the beginning of something, okay? I don't think we often think about it when we get our paycheck or we get some un, you know, unexpected money or what it might be, but that, that, it, that it's the beginning of something. We just think, okay, another two weeks has passed or another week has passed or another month has passed. And, but no, this, is, this is represents the beginning of something, the harvest. It's a reminder, a reminder of the fact that um, that God didn't abandon us when things got rough. In fact, if you remember it from Deuteronomy, that was the passage from Deuteronomy that Chaim was reading last week, I believe 26, um, that talks about, you know, as you're doing this, you're to say some stuff. You know, you're to recount that my, my forefathers were, what were a forefather was a wandering Aramean. In other words, you're recounting this idea that, um, you know, there, being a wandering person was not, you know, for us it's cool to be a lonely planet wanderer, you know, or something like that. Um, to backpack through Europe. But no, at that time, that's not the picture of a, of a cool, lonely planet kind of wandering. It's the picture of vulnerability and the picture of you know, the fact that, hey, you know what? This is the way he was. He was alone and vulnerable. But now, by these honoring of, my, of, of, of the first fruits, I'm recognizing the fact that, that God has protected um, and he didn't abandon when things were, were tough um, or when we were simply in that waiting mode when maybe there were no results before that, that first fruit poked through the through the gra- or through the uh, the soil there, and uh, Rabbi Chaim told us how recognizing God by giving Him the the best of what we have, especially especially when it is inconvenient, like the farmers for them it was that that's an important spiritual discipline to stop and to pause and to recognize that all we have belongs to God. And he made a, Rabbi Chaim made a, a pretty, I thought, a profound statement. It's one of the things I wrote down. Uh, he says that if you don't understand how good God has been to you, then you need to stop and take inventory of all those times where he has, in fact, provided, number one, and also take inventory of all those times when, in fact, um, you could have easily been snuffed out. Yeah, just... Not to point anyone out, but I think we've got a young lady in the back there with her leg up on a chair. I imagine she could think that, wow, I could have been snuffed out as opposed to maybe having a broken tibia here in this car wreck or something. So it's time to stop and recognize both that, the provision, and to stop and also recognize the fact that, uh, you know, there's, I'm sure many of us have stories very similar to the time when the, the car just barely hit you or when it was a very, very much a close call or you were sick and you know, your lungs were compromised and you didn't know if your breathing would ever get better or if the pain would go away or whatever it might be. And I think we all have examples where we can certainly stop and take inventory um, of provision as well as the near misses in life. <clears throat> so that's, that's where we were last week. And, uh, and Chaim uh, wanted me to look at a few things in the book of Nehemiah this week. And as I started reading, I kind of I got stopped at chapter 1. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure what, exactly what we're, we'll look uh, next week. But, um, but certainly what I'm looking at here is basically the first chapter and then about the first eight verses or so into, uh, into chapter 2. And we'll talk about some of the things that I think uh, are, 
are going to be good for us in those in these first verses here. But just some background uh, and some thematic things for you if you're not as familiar with the book of Nehemiah. Um, as my friend Joe would say, it comes right after Ezra. He'd probably tell you some smart-alecky comment about where it comes in the book, but it does come right after Ezra. In fact, um, in, in some, other, some other manuscripts, it's actually all one book. Some think it's just one whole book of Ezra, and you see some interwoven themes between the two books. Obviously, you see the character of Ezra in both books, um, but there are reasons we think that it, it's fine to have, uh, have them separated into two books. But the big, the big theme of the book, the big theme of the book of Nehemiah if you were to kind of do it in the, in the uh, Twitter mode or something, you had to get it short. Um, it's the, the, the person, Nehemiah, rebuilding, rebuilding the walls uh, around Jerusalem that had been um, torn down and instituting some social and religious reforms amongst the people, getting people to move back there and to kind of get back into uh, temple life and so forth. That's the big, the big theme of Nehemiah, is the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem and then the institution of of these social and religious reforms. Um, it may be by way of, of, uh, of reminder again, you know, Israel was, uh, was united at one point, divided into a northern and southern kingdom, um, and then this, this has to do with the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken, uh, was invaded and taken away into captivity in, in the early 700, 720 around uh, B.C., and then in 586, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged the city uh, of, of Jerusalem there also, and that's when Judah was taken, taken away. And so at the point, the timeline of Nehemiah, what we're talking about is probably about 140 years since that had happened. Okay, 140 years of when, when they besieged the walls, knocked the walls down. I mean, you read in here about gates being burned. This is like, if you can picture like an old farm, let's say an old car on a farm somewhere that's been there, uh, or maybe some of those... Uh, um, cars that are in the front yards of, of some southern states in this country, you know, people have cars in their front yard, did you know that? Not in Denver area, but where I used to live, there, people have cars, kind of like lawn ornaments and grass growing up through them and rotted floorboards, and in other words, there's no way to rehabilitate that car. That thing is, is just, it's a heap, it is not salvageable. Um, that's kind of the condition, that's sort of the picture of what these walls were probably like. This is not like your door comes off the hinges and you put a new hinge on, I mean, it was pretty bad. Again, things were burnt, rotted, neglected, uh, beyond, beyond rehabilitation. So that's the big picture. That's the big picture of the setting and the, the state of affairs. And it's important for us to keep that in mind. Hopefully that will make sense why you want to keep that in mind, just how a bad situation it was um, at the beginning of, of what we're reading today. It starts from there, okay, in Nehemiah. So in Nehemiah, the main character of the, of the book is Nehemiah. He's the main person there, uh, one, of, one of these exiles. And he also wants you to realize he was pretty much, this is just pretty much uh, an ordinary citizen that he was. Yes, yes and no. I say yes in the sense that he wasn't a king, he wasn't a priest necessarily. Um, he did have a good job, I would say. Um, uh, some will argue that he was even second in command. I don't know that he was necessarily second in command, but he certainly had, uh, you read at the end of chapter 1, it says that he was, uh, the, or I'm sorry, beginning of chapter 2, that, that he was cupbearer of the king, or maybe it's in chapter 1, right in there between. There's no chapters anyways, really, uh, in the Bible, but, uh, or verses. But he, um, he was a cupbearer, had a very high position, in the one sense, but in the other sense, he was an ordinary citizen. He had a, he had a, had a, had a government job, um, 
But uh, he had to ensure that the king didn't die by drinking something poison. Um, he, had to, he had to be that way. So he was a pretty big deal in that sense. But the bigger deal that I think we see through the story of Nehemiah, the bigger deal uh, is really just how he ended up being used by God, which is a lot of what we see in the Bible, how people are used by God. And I think that's how, why it's instructive and, and encouraging for us to see that no matter how great somebody is, I mean, yeah, again, he had, a, had an important position, but the task he was facing was tremendous. And so the bigger, the bigger thing is really um, how, he was ended up, how he ended up being used by God. And it wasn't just because of his position, um, because it, it wasn't like there was no one else around. I mean, there, the est- there's estimates that say at that time in uh, the sort of the remnant of Judah that had returned to Jerusalem, there could have been in the neighborhood of 90 to 100,000 uh, people who had already returned from exile. So it wasn't that there was something like that he was the only one available kind of thing, um, but God used him because that he walked, I believe, because he lived and walked by faith. I think that's what the story bears out. And most of us are probably familiar with the uh, sort of the textbook definition, I guess, of faith that we find in the book of Hebrews. Um, Hebrews 11.1, 1, that it's the, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that. And certainly when it comes to this, in terms of does Nehemiah have faith, I think he would certainly qualify according to that definition because um, how things would ultimately work out in this situation, how things would get rebuilt and how people would get motivated, there's no question that that was unseen to him. There's no way he could have seen uh, how this would happen. And we see how things kind of transpire in chapter 2. We'll look at that as well. It wasn't a planned event. He couldn't have said, ah, this is how it's going to happen, and this is how things are going to come together. So God definitely used him because he lived and he walked by faith. So Nehemiah prays, and that's the part that, that Bix read, and I'm going to read the detail of the prayer here in a little bit, just a moment. Um, and then he coordinates the rebuilding of the walls, and things work out. That's the story in a nutshell. Okay? Again, that's the Twitter, the Twitter version. Um, it was like 150 characters or something we get? That's about it. So yeah, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He prays, builds them. Everything works out wonderful. That's the, that's the story in a nutshell. But look, look, we're going to look at the details because, again, I think that's, that there are some very instructive and amazing things that can be found in the details. So let's take just a moment. I want to read um, some more of the verses that, that Bix didn't read. If you've got your Bible there, we're going to pick up. Uh, I'll go ahead and pick up in, uh, in verse 5. Um, and we'll read through uh, the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to read one other thing in, in chapter 2, for right now at least. So this is Nehemiah chapter 1, and starting in verse 5. So again, uh, the, 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 the guy from Judah came, and Nehemiah said, what's going on? Things are deplorable, horrible, the walls are burned down, and so forth. And we see that Nehemiah um, wept, mourned for days, fasting and praying before the Lord. He says, I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses? If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, in other words, although you are spread hither and yon, you guys are spread out, no matter how far you might be from the furthest place from here. He said, no matter, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At that time, I was cupbearer to the king. So that's the prayer. And, and one other prayer, in the, I want to just jump over to, 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 uh, to chapter 2 in verse, um, is it verse 4? I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 2 in verse 4. <clears throat> when the, and we'll get into kind of what the, what the context is here in a minute. This is another place where he prays. He saw that big prayer, right? And then he also said, uh, so I pray to the God of heaven. He was asked a question by the king. I'll get into that in a moment. And he says, so I pray to the God of heaven. Those are the, the two kind of prayer areas. So you got these, you know, 11 verses in that one little boop, and I prayed. Whew. That's one of those quick prayers. But I want you to see all of it because, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it's a, a one-verse uh, very, very short little verse that says, pray without ceasing. It's a, it's a command that Paul talks about. We're to pray without ceasing. And sometimes I think we wonder, well, what does that mean? Um, and we'll talk a little about what that might mean. But certainly here, I think this is a, a pretty good example of a pray without ceasing. It wasn't that this was his only little, oh, Lord, help me kind of prayer here in, in chapter 2, verse 4. But this is an example of a pray without ceasing. He's there on the job and gets asked a question, and he whether he said it out loud, whether he breathed it, whether he thought it, I don't know. But it's a good example, I think, of, of, of pray without ceasing. But again, don't mistake uh, that as a, as a first-time desperation, oh, Lord, help me kind of prayer. It was quick, they're okay, but that should not be our mainstay. They need to be backed up with a lot of other prayer, which I think is really what we draw out of this larger section here as we go along. So a couple things about, uh, about prayer from Nehemiah. Three things I want to look at right up front. Three things that I think we can draw from, from here regarding prayer in general. And number one uh, is the quantity of prayer. Quantity or frequency. The off- oftenness, if you will. Quantity or frequency of prayer. Uh, number two, the subject. Subject of prayer. And number three, the attitude of prayer. So quantity or frequency, uh, subject, and then attitude. Um, here's some trivia for you. 406 verses are in the book of Nehemiah. Again, there aren't really verses, but we're talking, you know, probably a lot more sentences. But 406 verses are in the book of Nehemiah. Um, There's about 46 of those verses have to do with prayer. What's the percentage, young man? Uh, Look at this. This, More like 11. Look at that. Mathematician right here. He had no idea I was going to call on him. That was easy math, though. Um, yeah, about 11%. About 11% of the... Uh, just make sure you're awake. I know I saw you were, you were paying attention. About 11% of the, uh, of the story of Nehemiah has to do with prayer. 11% of the story. Um, what about you? What about the percent of your story, would you say, has to do with prayer? Percent of your story. You don't have to answer that out loud. <laughs> I was thinking about that when I, when I read that, that, uh, you know, that percentage, I thought, wow, what is a percent? You know, we've got 24 hours in a day, all of us. If anyone has more, please let me know. I'd like to know. Uh, believe me, I'll, we pay handsomely for that, that information. Uh, eight hours of sleep a day, right? Everyone's getting eight hours of sleep. I know you are, yeah. So, uh, 
So we all know that's a conservative. So 16 waking hours. I won't ask you to do the math, but it's, it's, it's less than two hours, but maybe an hour, 1.75 uh, hours of, our, of, of that would be, you know, how much time we have. How much time are you in prayer every day? I don't know. 1.75 hours. How about that compared with the amount of time we are on the Internet or watching television, you know? So quantity or frequency of prayer, I think, is something um, that we should consider. Just how much prayer? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? What is our quantity and frequency compared to the overall amount of time in our story, in our lives, you know? I think that it's in this story a lot because Nehemiah was probably involved in prayer a lot as well, you know? So quantity or frequency of prayer. What about the subject, the subject of your prayers? The subject, are they only self-serving prayers? Or are they big picture, big picture prayer? When I say that big picture, I mean like prayer for others, uh, prayer for your family, your friends, um, you know, the relatives, unbelievers, you know? And not just prayers... You might say, well, I pray for those people, yeah. Well, not just prayers about them, like, oh, Lord, they need help, pray for them. You know, that's, the, that's not what I mean. Because um, you, if you paid attention, you'll hear the pronouns that were used in Nehemiah's prayer. He wouldn't say, oh, those guys are a mess in Judah. Please help them. Help them, they are terrible. You see, you see the collective, you see I, you see we, our family, my sins, our sins. There's a lot of what we call collective or personal pronouns, us things. In other words, um, in the subject of his prayers, he wasn't, Nehemiah was not distancing himself from trouble that may, he, maybe he or did or did not feel he was personally responsible for, but he saw it as a collective. He saw it as a collective, and he wasn't uh, excluding himself from that. So the subject of your prayers, are they, are they subjective only? Are they objective? Are they outside of you? And, and how, how does that all work? Something else to consider. The quantity, the frequency, the subject of your prayers. And here's, a, here's one I think we see here for sure. Uh, is how about the attitude? The attitude in which we approach God in prayer. The attitude. Um, Nehemiah was respectful, I believe, to um, the king, Artaxerxes. In fact, if you look ahead a little bit, I, I was going to read, um, read some here in chapter 2. The way the story goes, uh, he says he was a cupbearer. He was carrying the wine one day. And the king said, you know, why is your face sad? This can only be sadness. And when he had an opportunity to talk to the king, he said, you know, O king, may you live forever, if it pleases the king, if the, if the servant has found favor with you, and so forth. So on the one hand, he, his attitude is respectful uh, to, to, the, to King Artaxerxes. But look at, uh, back at verse 5 where I started out um, when he's praying to God. He says, I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. Basically, he, he recognizes the, the God of great. You know, it's a, it, the words are great and, and awesome God there. And then he, he lists why that is. And then if you go down to the bottom, uh, he says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And there's, everyone's translation probably says this man. There's no other, I can't imagine it's anything other than this man because it says in Hebrew, this man. <laughs> So it's very, very straightforward. The point is, I think it's very clear that, that Nehemiah um, had a very clear distinction between Artaxerxes and his, his, his role on the earth, if you will, uh, to, to that boss, and who God was. He had a very clear distinction. It's very, I think it's very graphic there, this idea of the great and awesome God versus this man. He knew, he knew what was what. 
Um, I said, but again, he wasn't disrespectful. So my question there with regard to attitude is, do we approach God with the same attitude of respect and reverence that, that we would, let's say, if you were planning on Monday, maybe you're planning on Monday to go in and ask your boss for some time off, or maybe you're going to ask your boss for, you know, for there's some, maybe for a raise, I don't know, or, or maybe you've got an issue with your neighbor, and it's maybe a little sticky, and they're playing loud music, or you've got to go and talk to them about a tree that's encroaching into your yard, or whatever it might be. Um, are, you more, are you more calculated and respectful in those type of situations than when you prepare to enter in to pray and to talk with God, basically? Are you more calculated in, well, I'm going to see this, whew, I'm going to see my boss right now, versus let me just go into God and you got your flip-flops and your bathrobe on in that case. I don't think you're going to do that on Monday with your, with your boss. Um, so we need to consider the attitude, the attitude of our prayers and how we approach God. I think it's borne out in the text here, Nehemiah's picture of God and man and so forth. So we talk about quantity and frequency, subject, attitude. But what about the prayers themselves? Are they faith-filled prayers? Would you say your, your prayers are faith-filled prayers? What are faith-filled prayers, you might ask? Um, are those prayers where you... you know, I think when we think of faith-filled prayers, uh, I know I, I've been here before, but we think these are the kind of prayers where we, we lay out what, what's going on, this is what needs to happen, and we thank God in advance for taking care of it. I've heard those kind of prayers. I've said those kind of prayers. Maybe you have. You know, we, we, we thank you in advance for doing these things that we just laid out are going to happen, right? Um, is that what a faith-filled prayer is? Well, you know, there's, there's a place for some things. We know that there's certain promises in God's Word, and we certainly can believe that God's going to deliver on those. But in some cases, I think we go beyond that, and we say this is how we want things to be, and Lord, we thank you in advance for it. But we look at, when we look at Nehemiah, when we look at his prayers, did he have... Did he have a big vision laid out at this point in, in the story? Did he have a big picture of exactly how things were going to, needed to happen, exactly what role he was going to have, if any, in this situation that he just heard about in Jerusalem? Did he have any idea how this would all play out? Did he then lay out the plan to God and thank him in advance for how that was going to happen and say, God, thank you and just thank you for blessing those plans? You know, I think when you read this, it's pretty clear, I believe the tech make, text makes it pretty clear that by the end, of, this is actually a four-month period of time. Something to look for when you're reading the Bible, by the way. There's all kinds of the, the who, what, when, where, why, how kind of stuff. Um, at the beginning, uh, time markers are, are kind of important to show how much time has elapsed and so forth. And so at the beginning of chapter 1, we see that this is the month of Kislev in the 20th year of, uh, of the king. And then in chapter 2, still the 20th year, but the month of Nisan. Um, and the kids learned the month, months, I guess, in their school uh, this past Wednesday night. Um, I still don't have them all figured out, but, uh, or haven't memorized, but that's a four-month span, basically, that uh, he was praying. So I believe um, that the text makes it clear that by the end of that four months, we're into chapter two here, um, that Nehemiah did have a pretty good picture, certainly had a, some of the basic ideas uh, at that point, but up front, I don't believe he had a clue where he could have said, God, this is what needs to happen, and boom, thank you very much for making this happen. I don't think he had a clue, because his initial reaction, as Bix read, was crying and mourning. And there are graphic words there that are used for crying and mourning. But what his prayer did start with at that point was um, desire. 
His prayer started with a deep desire, if nothing else. He wanted things to be different. He wanted Israel to be established and not disparaged, uh, not made fun of. He didn't want them to be a mockery. So for whatever he had, he had some desire up front. Sometimes that's all there is, you know. So I believe in that sense that the prayers were faith-filled in the sense that he had... I mean, again, we talked about what, what, what faith was, you know, and now faith is, right? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So in that sense, he had a hope and a confidence, but for sure, zero evidence at that point. So I think it was a very faith-filled prayer. So faith-filled prayer doesn't need to be, I'm standing on this and this needs to happen, and thank you, Lord, for making it happen, and I pray against everything that comes against it kind of stuff. A faith-filled prayer can be just what we see here, like I have a desire for things to be different, you know? Um, so a, a couple of things to learn from all this. A couple of things I think we can learn from this, this these, these ideas, is that humility and sorrow can be a very can be a, a perfectly legitimate um, part of how we pray, and perfectly legitimate part of what we could call a faith-filled prayer, to be humble and to, to express sorrow, but never doubtful about God, and never certainly never doubtful about His ability or His power to get things done. You can still be faith-filled. You know, again, I think we we feel like we got to be the faith-filled pastor who. Names claims it and all this kind of stuff. But no, faith-filled prayer can be just that. It can incorporate humility and sorrow, but never doubt about God and his ability to, to get things done and his ability and his power. So also, seemingly impossible things are possible through prayer and hard work when people determine to work together. I mean, we, we're certainly in a community here. That's why I think it's important to mention that. And also when they put God's needs uh, and interests first. This idea of first, first fruits incorporates that as well. A third thing is that when Nehemiah prays, we see that he prays for things that are way beyond himself and way beyond his own needs. In fact, think about this for a minute. I believe that, I mean, that Nehemiah, in terms of his own interests, you know, I mean, it's, it's natural for us to, you know, we're, you're, always, you're, you're always number one for yourself. You know, that's just the way it is. That's why teaching, when Paul teaches about husbands and wives, he says, you know, take care of them like you would yourself. Why? Because obviously, no matter how bad you're taking care of yourself, the truth is that's probably the best you can do. That's that you're the, still the number one in taking care of yourself. So uh, if you think about it in terms of that, Nehemiah's own interest, his own self, was probably doing just fine, quite frankly. Um, he probably had his own interests taken care of just very, very well. In the position that he was in, I think it's pretty, pretty obvious that he was no slouch, and he probably was doing fine. It wasn't that he was praying because, of, boy, he was miserable. In fact, when you think of Nehemiah, kind of think of like a Daniel character. He was probably trained in all kinds of etiquette, was most likely handsome, a uh, good-looking person, the best of the best kind of person to be in that kind of position. Um, we see here that he actually had an audience with the king. Probably had, he had this audience with the king, had his ear, so to speak, quite a bit. The king's wife was even there, was there in lots of personal situations. Um, and I'll bet was a confidant in some way to the king as well. So his interests, in terms of when he prays, he's looking beyond his own needs because his interests were most likely very well taken care of. But he didn't let it go to his head. And quite frankly, he considered it nothing compared to the larger need that he saw, the larger need that he prayed for There's nothing in there about his own personal needs necessarily in his prayer. And another thing I believe we can learn from this first piece of uh, the text here about prayer in Nehemiah is uh, is timing. It's a big part of this story, is timing. It's a big part of the story. It's something we've talked about at Yeshua Tzion as well. About five weeks ago when when Rabbi Chaim started our 
our series on, on our building campaign and so forth. He said, look, he feel, we feel the timing is, is now. And timing is very important. And that's also, that's also a big part of faith, is trusting God for the timing. Um, if you're familiar with, with Ezra, you'll know that this is not the first time that the rebuilding of the wall had been attempted. Did you know that? Um, I won't read it now, but in Ezra chapter 4, 23, Ezra, Ezra the folks at that time, they were going to kind of rebuild more globally the temple and the wall and everything. And very similar to what we see in Nehemiah, enemies came up, and we don't like that. They wrote a letter to the same king, Artaxerxes. They wrote a letter to the same guy and said, hey, these people are trying to rebel. They're trying to put themselves up beyond, you know, beyond the kingdom and so forth. And Artaxerxes issued a decree to stop the work. So the exact same thing, I mean, the exact kind of same thing happened there, but the timing, so that it was different. They had tried to do it before. So when Nehemiah asks the king to, uh, to, re- to, to, for him to go back and to start rebuilding, this was not just a simple request. This was actually um, a request for a policy reversal. He was asking the king, not just to let him go and do this, he was basically saying, um, I'd like you to reverse what you had previously, had previously done. That's that's what he ends up doing. Now, there could have been uh, some politically strategic timing in this. People have said that, you know, there were rebellions and different uprisings in that part of the lower delta and all these things, and therefore it would have made sense for, for Artaxerxes to fortify his position there, and he'd want more loyal subjects there and so forth. So it was uh, a stronger Judah there populated by loyal subjects would have been good for him. Um, but that's not definitive, number one. And certainly the text does not lead us to believe that Nehemiah had any inkling, had any idea um, that, 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 that because of that or anything else, that it was now the perfect time to ask the king. We don't see that anywhere. Uh, his interaction with the king on this whole matter, actually, was not planned at all. He had no idea if, when, or how this opportunity was going to arise. In fact, it came about in a fairly dangerous way. If you, if you go back to chapter 2, I want to read uh, the first couple verses of chapter 2. This is right after the prayer. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Hmm. So looking sad, just to, maybe you figure this out, but looking sad or being unhappy in this kind of situation uh, was not a good thing. Uh, you can look down at work, and it may not be a big deal. But in this particular situation, Nehemiah's sadness could have been construed as um, unhappiness with the king, unhappiness with his job, and therefore, as Chaim often says, uh, he could have been relieved of his head from his shoulders kind of thing. It could have been a big deal. Um, it could have cost him his life. But as today's message title says, uh, Nehemiah had faith, he had trust, and he was prayed up. And being prayed up, involves a lot of things that I think we see from, from the context here. It's not just the amount of time necessarily uh, that spent, one spends on the knees, although we did talk about quantity and frequency, uh, or the number of prayer lists that a person gets on. It wasn't that, uh, you know, Nehemiah sent out a quick text and emailed all his friends and said, put me on that prayer chain. I'm going to get on that prayer chain. I mean, we often get that kind of stuff at Yeshua Tzion. We often get calls at the office we get emails, you know, from sometimes people, I, I don't know who they are, but they just want to get on a prayer chain thinking that that's the key. Um, so being prayed up is not necessarily that idea of making sure you're on a million prayer lists. 
But being prayed up involves the overall picture uh, of waiting and of meditating and of listening. Waiting, meditating, and listening. We can, I think we can fairly deduce, we can fairly figure out from the text that part of Nehemiah's praying uh, had also involved him doing these very things, this meditating and thinking and listening on the entire situation and trusting that his thoughts were being directed by his prayers. Uh, I kind of see the picture of, um, did I get an amen over there? Look at that, I got an amen in the corner. Amen, I thought so. I was waiting, it's been a while, it's been like 20 minutes you haven't got. Um, the picture I kind of get there is sort of like a, um, like a third, fourth, third, third string quarterback, for example, you know, that the chances of, of him getting in the game are pretty slim, but yet he's got to be on the sidelines. He's got to have his, you know, he's got to be kneeling, watching what's going on, paying attention to, to the game and, and, and how things are playing out, looking at the other team and their defense and seeing what's going on because he's got to be ready when his time to enter the game comes. And let's look at the text here again. I mean, it's, it's that moment that's very important. You know, look at the text again here. In, in, uh, we're picking up right where we left off in verse 3 there. You know, he said, I, I, I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city of my of ancestors, a place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste, lies waste, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? Boom, there it is. That's the first and second string quarterback went out. <laughs> Just like that, you know. That's it. The coach calls the third string QB. So that's when Nehemiah throws up his quick prayer, puts on his helmet, puts his chin strap on, all that kind of stuff, and makes his request. But again, that quick prayer was not the, oh, wait, wait a minute, let me grab my stuff and let me get together. Where's, which, which way are we going? Are we on offense right now? Which, which direction are we heading? What's the score? It wasn't anything like that, okay, that quick prayer. And then we see the evidence again that, there wasn't, that this wasn't just some one-time pray-and-forget-about-it kind of thing. The evidence that we see in these next several verses, uh, it appears that Nehemiah has been thinking about this for a while. Again, four months and previously in the text, it says day and night. It said, this day I pray day and night. So uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we're going to read. So the king says, what can I do for you? He says, then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. Hey, we're going to Charleston. Uh... The king said to me, the queen also was sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a date. Then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. So, Nehemiah had prayed and thought this through, even when he had zero earthly idea of, of how or when it would happen. So, was Nehemiah's uh, praying the thing that did the trick for this? I would say yes. Were there any political reasons maybe that were going on in the, to the advantage of, the, of Artaxerxes to do, to do the rebuilding and so forth? Was that the reason? Um, possibly. It's possible. 
but overall, I think how we ended right there on that verse was really the, why the success happened. It's due to, the, uh, to God's hand and God's timing. We're talking about timing still. You know, God's timing. It's a big part of this. It might look like, again, something else, but the truth is it's really God's hand and God's timing. Um, if you've been with us for, again, any of the last four weeks, you know that we, we kind of culminated last week in a, in a pledge project, a new thing for us, a faith commitment that uh, people make between themselves and the Lord to, to bolster our, our, uh, our building fund, our, our idea, our plan was to, uh, you know, to see if in the next 12 months we could uh, raise approximately another $200,000 to have a down payment or, or for whatever reason, uh, you know, we, need, we need more money to acquire uh, a ministry space. Okay, so we had step one of that. Step one of that was last week with this, uh, this pledge project. Now, as Rabbi Chaim said, uh, neither he or I have, have seen nor will we see any of those individual cards other than the ones that, that we wrote ourselves. Um, but I do have an idea of, the, you know, I would give an idea of kind of the, 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 the figures, so to speak. Um, did we get all the money? Did we get 100% participation? No, no, we didn't. But even if we had... I think we need to remember a basic fact, that that endeavor, this endeavor, okay, or any endeavor for that matter, um, has less to do with what we do and whether or not we raise all the money or we find the building or whatever it might be. We don't want to get necessarily totally focused on that piece. It has less to do with what we do and more to do with what God does and more to do with his timing and all of these things that we can see in in this book as well. We see examples of the same kind of stuff. So whether it be the... The, the, the task of, of, of raising, you know, more like a million dollars probably with money in reserves to take care of maintenance and operating expenses, all these other things, whether it's something like that, um, which is, seems to be our task right now that we, we feel God's calling us to, or whether it be some other task in your life, whether it be uh, the task that you might need to find another job, you might need to increase your income, you might need to find a job, maybe the task that you have of... Uh, getting your car fixed, getting a new car, uh, finding a new place to live. Maybe you need to visit family and you need some time and money to do that. Maybe there's some broken relationship that you have that seems like completely in ruins, kind of like the walls around Jerusalem. Whatever the task that's facing you, whatever the issue in front of you might be, um, I think we can learn from Nehemiah that, that praying to God by meditating on direction and process, not obsessing about things, but being attentive and being ready to move and being ready to act when the timing is right. I think that's all part of the big picture there. Um, again, maybe you're facing some, some task, maybe one of those things I mentioned, maybe something else, I don't know. Maybe it, it, it appears as though things are, are moving backwards, Things are, are even worse than when they started. Or maybe it just seems like, man, there's just no traction here. There's no way I can see how to move forward. And there's no way uh, I can see how to move backwards. It just doesn't seem like anything's going to change. I want to encourage you that it's not necessarily the time to uh, beat yourself up, okay? Uh, replaying in your mind how things have kind of spiraled or, or devolved into the mess that they are. Um, wondering how you can then dig yourself out of it praying out of desperation for God to turn things around according to, you know, this is how I know this needs to play out, so please, Lord, make it be this way, you know? But I would suggest that, no, we can learn from from this story here that that it's really time to praise God as Nehemiah did at the beginning of his prayer. That's the first thing he did when faced with, again, zero idea of what's going to happen, but a pretty good picture of of the state of affairs, and they they weren't good. 
that you can take that time to instead praise God, to recognize him for who he is, and then continually seek him about the situation of the request. Pray, pray without ceasing, to meditate on it. Again, don't obsess about it, but think and listen for answers and be ready when, when opportunity, opportunity comes. Because, you know, we don't always know. We don't always know what's, uh, what God's doing and what he's waiting for. Um, but again, we do know that we are not to doubt his power or his ability. I want to read you a little story here. A story about a rabbi. Short story. It says, Once when he was on a journey to a distant town, Rabbi Akiba stopped at an inn and sought accommodation for the night. But he couldn't get in. No matter, he said. Whatever God does, he does for the best. He went on for a short distance and came to a field where he decided to settle down for the night. Akiba had with him a donkey upon which he rode and a rooster to wake him at dawn and a lamp to light his way. In the middle of the night, a lion killed his donkey. And a little later, a wild cat ate his rooster. Akiba resigned himself to the loss and said, well, whatever God does, he does for the best. But that wasn't the end of his troubles. For soon after that, a strong gust of wind blew out his lamp, and Akiba was left in the darkness. Again, he comforted himself with the thought that whatever God does is for the best. Next morning, he learned that during the night, a gang of armed robbers had descended on the town and attacked the inn where he had been refused accommodation, murdering some of the guests and robbing all of them. See, said Akiba, had I been given a place to sleep in that inn, I would also have been a victim. Or had the donkey brayed, or the rooster crowed, or the lamp been lit, those murderous robbers would have been advised of my presence here, and I could have suffered the sad fate of the town folk. A couple morals they give for the story here. I think you figured out the morals. <laughs> What's important is the moral of the story, and this is the belief that everything that happens happens not only with the knowledge of God, but also through his will. Not only the affairs of nations on the large map of human civilization, but also the daily happenings of the individual person. At all events, this seems to be what Akiba is saying when after all the things that happen to him, he says, whatever God does, he does for the best. You know, Nehemiah asked great things of God and attempted great things based on his reliance on God. And we should, we should expect, we should do and we should expect the same, be willing to ask great things and be willing to rely and trust him for that. But in the meantime, when things uh, appear as though they're not working, um, or when they seem to be going wrong, backwards, or just not going anywhere at all, then we need to consider that what we might be seeing there, as opposed to this negative backwards movement or this negative stagnation, what we might be seeing uh, in the form of an obstacle or in the form of the unknown is really only God's timing and God's protection. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I thank, you that, uh, I thank you for showing us, Lord, how you come through with what uh, I know Rabbi Chaim has called uh, out-of-the-ballpark power for us to bring things about for your kingdom purposes. And as such, Lord, I ask that you help each and every one of us to see just how we're to align ourselves with your purposes and your plans in order to become a part of what you're doing in your timing, Lord. 
And I ask that you would help each one of us to see beyond our immediate circumstances, Lord, and trust that you are working, that you are working in your way, and you are working in your timing. And I pray, Lord, that you would help, help us to trust and obey you in all ways for all things. And Lord, a necessary part of that trust, a necessary part of trusting you, Lord, is that trusting the fact that you came to earth to make a way for us to walk with you and to be righteous in your sight. And by trusting that Yeshua, Jesus, was the necessary atoning sacrifice that paid the debt for our sins, Lord, a debt that none of us has any, had any chance to possibly pay on our own. No way of repaying. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today, Lord, that hasn't taken that initial step, that initial trusting step of faith, Lord, by placing their trust in that atonement of Yeshua, Lord, that today would be the day, as as Linda said earlier uh, during our worship, she said that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray that today would be their day to overcome whatever obstacles have been holding them back and making a firm commitment to you, Lord. And as I pray that as as they take that stand for you, that you would show yourself faithful to them, Lord. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.